Good morning, everybody. Let me, we're in the second week of our Clear History series. We began last week in the midst of the polar vortex, so if you missed it, I do want to encourage you uh, to go online sometime if you haven't already and listen to the podcast that is there. I really do think it will help you by way of foundation, especially just the very heart of what I believe to be the gospel, the foundation for us moving forward this morning. If you missed it, though, that's okay, you'll be all right this morning. Uh, the issue for us is to talk about how do you get a clear history, especially as we move into a new year. What do you do with like that baggage that tends to build up in your life of sin or just failure or just regrets? How do you move forward without that and get kind of that clear history reset button? So that's what we began that conversation last week. In fact, we had an assignment that I asked you to spend some time this week, sometime this week, sitting down with maybe a paper and pen, maybe it's your journal, whatever it is that you do, and just make a list of the things from 2013 that you do not want to carry over to a new year. Like as you think about the new year, let everything be on the table. What thoughts? Like, no, that thought always leads me to paranoia or depression. I do not need to take this with me into a new year. What behaviors might be, yeah, that's the Sam of 2013, but it's not going to be the Sam of 2014. Maybe it's a particular aspect of a relationship or a relationship. Just what are those things that you would say, yeah, I need that to be uh, the old life in 2013 and not carry it forward into a new year. But when I think about a clear history, a reset, here's what I know is true, at least for my life, and that is is another system of sin management doesn't work for me. Like it's never been successful in my life. I have yet to discover the seven-point plan that's a strategy to get me out of my sin or my regret or my failure. I haven't found it. And my guess is you haven't found it either, otherwise we'd have shared it by now and we'd all be done with sin and failure and regret. I don't need another sin management system. In fact, the Bible never once, not once, ever commends anybody for finally working really hard and really disciplining themselves and really pulling themselves up from their own bootstraps to move beyond their sin or their failure or their regret. In fact, that idea seems to be in complete contradiction to our gospel. That the idea of me working really hard to achieve something is not for me good news. In fact, the gospel, as we talked about last week, is that we are broken to depths that we haven't even begun to acknowledge or become aware of, and that we will never, ever be holy enough, good enough, righteous enough, spiritual enough to ever earn God's love or approval or to move us out of sin, failure, and regret. The gospel is that Jesus, the very Son of God, who knew no sin would become sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. That's what Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So it becomes for us the secret to a clear history is our positioning. I used to be over here, but now the Lord Jesus, because of his grace, has brought me to be with him. When God sees me, what he sees is the reflected righteousness of his son in my life, and that's what's rescued me and saved me. It's my position with Jesus that gives me a clear history, a clean slate, a I'm pushing the restart button, this is a new Sam. And it's not about me, it's about him. When God looks at me, I can say, I'm with him. And God says, then I see that reflected in you. It's my positioning, and this is our good news. This is the gospel. Our clear history, moving beyond sin, regret, and failure, has nothing to do with you, and has everything to do with him, period. No exceptions. But that does bring us back, though, to the fundamental question we began last week, and it's to ask this question. Okay, but do people, though, change? Can people really change? And does the gospel of Jesus have the power to bring about a new life, a changed life, in such a way that my 2014 
is, in fact, a different year for me because I, in fact, have changed in such a way that I become a different person. And so last week we took a look at Paul's, uh, what he taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. He gives a whole list of different sins and just kind of different places that people have been in their life. And then when you get to verse 11, he says this, and that is what some of you, what does it say? Were. Meaning, change is taken. I know that your life used to be this. You used to be involved in this. This used to be your identity. That's what you used to be. That's what you were. But now, you've been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of our God. See, Paul notes, you were that, but you're not anymore. See, now you've been washed, and I think what he means by that is you've been forgiven. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. In what? Our own hard work and discipline? No, no, no. What does he say? Two things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So last week we talked about justification, meaning this is the position thing. I now belong with Christ. I put my faith in Christ. And when that happens, we become justified before God. And so we took a trip through the Gospels and through Acts and even ended in Romans where Paul has a lot to say. For example, Romans 8, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has finally set us free from that law of sin and death. And so this week, I want to take a look at this idea that Paul communicates. He talks about being washed, and at the end, he talks about being justified, but there's that word in the middle that is sanctification. Now, I'm going to talk about that this morning. What is sanctification? It's the key to answering our question, do people change? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ have the power to really help people change, to receive a clear history and walk in, to walk in in 2014? So let's talk about sanctification. Let me give you a definition, and I did a lot of scholarly work on this, and I looked at Wikipedia. And so let me share with you Wikipedia's definition of sanctification, which I like and I think is right. Here's what it says. It says, sanctification is the act or process of acquiring sanctity. Now, don't you like how they do that? They take the word, just kind of turn around a little bit, and that's the definition. Yeah, thank you. Or what does that mean, sanctity? It mean, or it means, or being made or becoming holy. It's the idea that you started here, but once you enter into the process of sanctification, you will end up there. Well, where's there? Acquiring sanctity or becoming holy. Or Merriam-Webster will define it like this, the state of growing in divine grace as a result of Christian commitment after your baptism or conversion. It is a process of acquiring sanctity, of being made holy. It's a process, one that we enter into. Now listen to me. It has nothing to do with you being forgiven and washed. Jesus has already secured that for you on the cross, nor does this have anything to do with your justification. It's not, I enter into the sanctification process so that I can become justified. No, no, you have been justified because of your positioning with Jesus. This is a different thing, and now we enter into Jesus' divine grace to see real-life change occur through this idea of sanctification. Let me give you an analogy to try to explain, and I, um, let me, let me uh, go to the Marine Corps if I could, because I've always kind of had a fascination with the Marine Corps. In fact, my life goals uh, early on, even up into college, was to be a Marine. My goal was to graduate from college. I would enter the Marine Corps. I'd become a legal officer. I'd make a, a movie about a few good men. And then I would eventually get out of the Marine Corps, and I'd enter into a life of politics. That was my life goal and plan at one time until God rescued America from me and <laughs> sent me to you. So there you, there you have that. Uh, uh, so anyhow, so in the Marine Corps. And so uh, with a little help from consultants like Jeff Hack this week, let me try to explain to you, uh, using the Marines as an analogy, this idea of sanctification. Now, here's what happens. When you enlist in the Marines, they will immediately 
send you off to what we commonly call boot camp. Formerly, it is known as United States Marine Corps Recruit Training. It's a 12-week long, and if you reside east of the Mississippi River, which we do if you sign up, you will go to Paris Island in South Carolina. If you live west of the Mississippi River, they will send you to San Diego, which sounds great in terms of weather to me right now. And I want you to imagine for a moment the great diversity of people who sign up to be Marines. I mean, they come from all sorts of different backgrounds, different family types, different ethnicities. Men will sign up. Women will now enlist. They'll have different personalities, different life experiences. They will each have a life of different habits and routines, a particular way of talking, a view of themselves that are all unique as different individuals, all of which in the next 12 weeks will be demolished. When they get to boot camp... One of the first things that will happen is they'll be issued gear, including their uniform. And nobody will have at that moment the right to say, yeah, but that color green doesn't really look good on me. Can I have another uh, uniform with a different color? No, it'll all be uniform. Their favorite styles no longer matter. Their hair will be buzzed, and that will be because they're trying to strip that old identity from them. And so the Marine Corps does not care whether you have gorgeous blonde curly locks It will be removed as soon as you head on to boot camp. You will have things like medical evaluations, initial strength tests. You'll report to your barracks where you'll meet your drill instructor in whom you will learn to hate, and you'll be instructed in what is called the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Whatever you used to do in your old life by way of your daily routine will now be replaced with a new form of routine and discipline that will be uniform with all the other recruits. You'll have things like bayonet assault courses and combat training and martial art training. You'll do obstacle courses, rifle training, simulating tactical scenarios. It will all lead you up to, after 12 weeks, to what's called the crucible, where they try to take everything that you've learned and apply it in a huge, massive drill. But over these 12 weeks, you will learn a new language. You might have said yes or yeah to your mama, but you won't respond with yeah to your drill instructor. You will say, sir, yes, sir, and it will become second nature to you. You might have had prejudices against other races coming into the Marine Corps, but now in this platoon, those will all be demolished, and you'll learn to work as a team. You might have had the habit of sleeping in until 10 a.m. and then playing video games for three hours, but those are long gone. For 12 weeks, you have found a new identity. And after the crucible, the recruits will march together to what's called the emblem ceremony where their drill instructors will present their platoons with the Marine Corps emblem, the eagle, globe, and anchor. And for the very first time, not not prior, for the very first time, we'll finally address them as Marines. Now you are Marines. In fact, this is what the recruit ceremony will look like. Let me be the first to congratulate you on a job well done and call you a United States Marine. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. I state your name. I you solemnly swear. To support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies. And domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same, then I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of 
Those officers, Those officers appointed, over me, appointed over me according to regulations, regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So help me God. After 12 weeks of training, this will be the first time that they may call themselves Marines. By way of positioning, they are now an official Marine. They've graduate, their graduation boot camp secures this for them. But I would dare say that after 12 weeks, if you were to ask, are they good Marines? My answer is, well, after just 12 weeks of training, probably not. But they are Marines nonetheless. But they've barely had 12 weeks of training, most of which was simply to get rid of much of the old identity as possible and to make sure that they're miserable because people tend to bond together in misery as a team. But if you threw them out in a war zone right now, it probably won't go well because they've only had 12 weeks of training. Are they Marines? Yes. I mean, sir, yes, sir. Are they good Marines? Probably not just yet. What happens next is these graduates will then enter into what will be for them life in the Marine Corps. It will be a Marine sanctification process. They will enter into the School of Infantry, and that will be a whole other ballgame. And some will go into OCS physical preparations or commissioning programs or officer candidate school, or some will go after time to war, some to basic school, others into specialized training, and this will be what they do. It will be their career, and some it will be for over 20 years. So they might have started here even after 12 weeks, but by the time that they leave the military, they'll be over here, and they'll be different. Will there be a Marine right here? Yes. But there'll be a different kind of a Marine here because of the Marine sanctification process that is training them and disciplining them and teaching them to be Marines. So much so that most people who transition from a career in the military back into civilian life have a difficult time. It's hard to go back to civilian life after a lifetime or a career in the military, and most will, will statistics tell us that most in the difficulty find civilian life a little bit awkward. Dealing with civilians and their undisciplined routine can be a challenge. The old life you once knew before you became a Marine now feels awkward and uncomfortable, and you're not good at that anymore. The stats tell us that 98% of those transitioning from a military life back into the civilian life have difficulty re-entering the workforce. 49% will say they have issues relating to non-veterans. 45% will say others not culturally competent of veterans. 36% 36% will say they have a hard time reacclimating to family life. 36% will report challenges in finding support to handle both physical and mental health issues. Issues like depression or suicidal thoughts or post-traumatic stress or disorders, drug and alcohol abuse are high on the list of issues that could eventually manifest with a transition back into civilian life. Now, let me use this as an illustration for the Christian life. A Christian in conversion, which we talked about last week, They learn a new language. We learn a new way of speaking. We learn a new way of thinking. We're going to exchange our old life for this new value that Jesus is Lord. And we might even in it pick up some new habits. I didn't used to pray, but now I pray every once in a great while. I never read my Bible, but now I read my Bible from time to time. I worship God more than I used to. I attend church like I didn't before. And he walks us through repentance and confession and faith and baptism. Those are all parts of the process. When we When he puts his faith in Christ Jesus, he can call himself a Christian. Why? Because he's been washed and he's been justified. It's a positioning thing. Like we position ourselves with Jesus. 
That's how it begins. Now, as a side note, let me just say this because a lot of us here at Living Stones come from such a diverse background, and we have lots of different experiences in terms of, if you were to answer the question, yeah, but when does somebody get to call themselves a Christian? Now, the Marine Corps is very easy. It's at that ceremony. For the first time, you can call yourself a Marine. But when can you finally call yourself a Christian? For some of you, you were taught it's when you say the sinner's prayer, and when it's done, ta-da, you're a Christian. Others of you grew up in a tradition maybe where baptism was a thing, like once you were baptized, you came up out of the waters, ta-da, now you're a Christian. Others of you, you came forward to some altar and you confessed Jesus. Others of you prayed Jesus into your heart. I mean, some of you maybe from a charismatic background had a, kind of had some experience with the Holy Spirit, and those were the pointers. What I'd say to all of that is, is that if you're trying to ask the Bible this question, at what point does one become a Christian? The answer is the Bible doesn't itself seem to be interested in trying to answer that particular question for us because it never really gives us an exact point. Never does the Bible tell us when this happens, then that is the moment you are a Christian. So when you're reading through Acts, what you'll see is Cornelius receives the Holy Spirit before his baptism, and it looks like the Apostle Paul might as well. Yet others will get baptized, and they don't receive the Holy Spirit until one of the apostles show up. And nowhere do you really see the idea of praying the sinner's prayer or inviting Jesus to come into our heart. But what I would say ultimately is yes to all of it, to repentance, to confession, to faith, to prayer, to baptism. It all is a part of the process of conversion and becoming a Christian. But let me go back to this idea of when you place your life into the hands of Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, can you call yourself a Christian? The answer is yes, because of your position. You've been washed. You've been justified. You belong to Christ. But when you first do that, are you a good Christian? My answer is no, probably not. You're probably a lousy Christian, but you're a Christian nonetheless. In the same way, after 12 weeks, are you a good Marine? Probably not, but you're a Marine nonetheless. See, when you first become a Christian, you've got a whole lifetime of habits and hang-ups and thoughts and behaviors, and it feels like brand new Christian's more so than the rest of us, and we do too, though, but we, we're always messing up, and we're always falling down. If you ask me, are they saved? The answer is, yes, they are, but just barely. And I have a dream of seeing here at the Living Stones Church hundreds and hundreds of just barely saved Christians, of people who, are they Christians? Yes, but they're not very good at it. And this is why it's important to me that as a church, like, our collective corporate spirit reflects that. It, it, we're not super spiritual and so holy that somebody who is a Christian but not really a good Christian, somebody who's saved but just kind of barely, can't feel like they can't sit among us and go, no, these are my peeps. It's, the dream for me is that, no, no, we've got just tons of people here who, they're Christians, just not very good yet. And are they saved? Yeah, but just barely. Will it be messy? Of course it will, but so are birthing rooms in the hospital. That should be what it kind of looks like around here. After being washed and justified, though, a Christian needs to undergo what is called sanctification. It's this process of achieving sanctity by becoming holy, and it is a process. So what that means is, number one, this. like you will never arrive. You just need to know that. This will be a lifelong journey. So you should cut yourself some slack if you aren't moving in perfection just yet, you never will. This sanctification process will be a lifelong journey. But here's what we hope, that your Jesus-given clear history will now allow you to move forward in 2014 as a new you. And the question becomes, how will that take place? My answer is because of the process of sanctification. The 2014 version of you is going to be way better than the 2013 version. 
And all too often, I know that we like the idea of being forgiven and washed. We like the idea of justified and sometimes sanctification. That's, eh, I don't know about that. Mark Batterson said this week, I read, he said, many people think they are following Jesus, but the reality is they've invited Jesus to follow them. Now, sanctification looks like this. At the end of the, like, as the years go on, just like it's hard for the military to transition back into civilian life, it would be hard for you being in Christ in that sanctification process to go back to your old life. Like, now it feels weird. Now it feels awkward. Now it feels uncomfortable. If you were to, at that point, respond in bitterness and hatred, that would feel strange to you. Before it was like, that's secondhand. That's how I treat other people. But now that I've been sanctified in Christ, that feels weird. To react as a man of war when now you've been trained as a man of peace, to go back to acting like a man of war would feel foreign to you. You don't think like that anymore. You don't act like that anymore. You've been sanctified. You're, you're slowly allowing your most initial responses and reactions to look like Jesus. So prior, when they cut you off and you flipped them off and yelled those words out the window, and that felt natural, now if you do that again, and you still might, but it will feel awkward. And when you're done, you'll start to have that, I don't, that's, that's not who I am anymore. So how does this sanctification process work? Is it by your effort and discipline and ability? No. We already discussed this. You aren't going to get you anywhere. This whole thing is an entirely a process of divine grace. You don't sanctify you. God sanctifies you. And how? Now, let me say this as a side note. This is important. It won't be without your cooperation. And it won't mean that you aren't involved. And it won't mean that you don't do something. Dallas Willard has a brilliant quote uh, referring to what Jesus teaches us in John 15. He says, Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. But if you do nothing, it will be apart from Jesus. Because when we follow after him, he calls us to cooperate and to do something. But go back to 1 Corinthians 6.11 because Paul gives us the key here. That's what some of you were, but you're washed. And you were sanctified. And you were justified. How? Here it is. Two things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Those are the two keys to our sanctification. We find sanctification in the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Let me tell you how that works. Number one, the name of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Now, first, in terms of background, oftentimes when the New Testament uses the word name, there's a bigger meaning in the Greek language and probably comes across in our English language. Like when we talk about somebody's name, it's like a title that distinguishes this person from that person. You're Bob, you're Tom, you're Chris, you're Bertha, which I think should be making a comeback. But that's, that's how we use name. But the Greek word is onoma, and it has a much deeper meaning. To have somebody's onoma is the essence of somebody. It is the character of somebody. It is the being. It's the essence of their being is their onoma, their name. And that's why when the Bible comes down so heavy on things like gossip and slander, the reason why is because there's sins against somebody's name, against the essence of who they are. Like when I gossip about you, when I say things bad about you or just things that are nobody else's business, what I'm doing is I'm attacking your onoma, your name, and lowering your name in the eyes of other people. If I say things that aren't true and I lie about you and I slander you, it's a sin against somebody's name. And that's why the New Testament is very quick to want to, no, no, we don't, as followers of Jesus, we don't engage in those sorts of things because it's an attack on somebody's name. Do you remember what Jesus says in our prayer life? Remember what he says about if you pray in his name, then God will answer. Now, I don't think Jesus means here, make sure when you're done with your prayer, you tack on at the end the little in Jesus' name so that it's kind of like a good luck charm. He doesn't mean that. What is Jesus saying? 
What he's saying is, I want you to pray in my name. What that means is pray in my essence, pray in my character, pray in my will, pray in my heart. And when your prayer will be manifest out of my own essence, my own being, my own character, my own heart, you can be guaranteed that the Father is going to answer that prayer. And so the name is significant. And in the sanctification process, you need to find yourself centered in the name of Jesus Christ, in his being, in his character, in his essence. Let me remind you what Jesus said in John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's to wake up every, and you should do this, wake up every morning and just say, Jesus, I want to learn today how to look just like you to respond to every situation that comes at me today just like you would, that in it I might bear fruit and be productive for you. That our prayer is that our life centered in the name of Jesus means that you'll see in me more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians, these are the fruits of the Spirit. And Jesus says we don't bear that. Our job is not to, okay, today I'm going to really bear the fruit of joy. Because Sam, even 2014 Sam, doesn't have the capacity to bear greater joy. I'm just not that joyful. But if Sam will be engrafted into Jesus, then it will be Jesus who bears joy within me. Does that make sense? It's not you. It's not your effort. Your job is to remain in Jesus. Stay centered in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then in that, he will bear that fruit in your life. So practically speaking, I would also recommend you read the Gospels. Spend time in, there's four, there's 66 books in your Bible. Four of them are called Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all about Jesus. You won't know how to respond like Jesus if you don't know Jesus. And you should become familiar with the stories in the Gospel and the words of Jesus specifically because his words sanctify. Jesus himself will say this in John 17, verse 17. It's a prayer he's offering to God, to his Father, for his disciples. He says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That the words of God help us in the sanctification process. Your conversational life with Jesus becomes significant as you enter into the sanctification process. And I would also say what it means to be in the center of the name of Jesus is you need to enter into the same things that Jesus did in his life here on earth. You know what Jesus did in his life? He spent time praying, he spent time fasting, he spent time in the scriptures. There were times when Jesus went off in silence and solitude. There are times when Jesus studied the scriptures and when he meditated. These are all divine graces that allow Jesus to be a part of that sanctification process that he invites us to as well. And these disciplines, we've called them spiritual disciplines, are kind of like marine training exercises. But even that, I want to remind you, it is still a work of God's grace. Don't think to yourself, man, I think I fast more than everybody else. I'm kind of all that. No, 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 it's still by God's grace that that happens. Like you might be thinking, hey, looking down this row, I think I put more in that chicken bucket than anybody else. And so I think I'm all, no, no, don't think you're all that. I mean, it's still by God's grace. Don't think, because I think, you know, every morning I pray for an hour, and when I look around at my friends, I don't think they're praying for an hour. I mean, you can't move in that. It's not about you. It's still a divine grace. And I would also say, just to kind of close out this idea of being centered in the name of Jesus, um, the New Testament calls the church, you, like us together, uh, the body of Christ. It will be hard for you to be centered in the name of Jesus if you're outside of the body of Christ. And that's why I think community is such an important thing for us. And when Jesus calls disciples to himself, he doesn't send them off into some individualistic spiritual quest. He calls them together to be community, gives them mission, and sends them off as community. But the second thing, not only in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but second is by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit 
in you will accomplish this sanctifying process. Paul will say this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through what? The sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And the Spirit will do this in two ways. Let me share this with you. Two things the Spirit will do to sanctify us. One, the Bible tells us the Spirit will remind us of Jesus' teachings. So if you'll know Jesus and be in his name, what will happen is I think you'll be surprised at how many things happen in your day that, it will, that the Spirit of God will remind you of something that Jesus taught you. Like, I know you want to respond like that, but here's what Jesus said to us. I know what you did was wrong, and now you're being confronted by it, and everything in you wants to lie to, get out, to not get in trouble. But the Spirit will remind you, yeah, but Jesus says the abundant life is let your yes be yes and your no, no. And you'll just all day you'll just notice the Spirit of God will help remind you of the teachings of Jesus. But here's the second thing that the Spirit of God will do is it will convict you. And you'll have inner promptings. And it might feel different or be different for each of you, but in the end what will happen is the Holy Spirit will make that old life kind of feel awkward and uncomfortable. And I see it all the time. People give their lives to Jesus, so they've been justified, they've been saved. Are they good at it? No, not at all. But give them enough time in the sanctification process, what you'll see is somebody who, even though they're a Christian, are still getting drunk. There'll be a point when the Spirit of God convicts them that, I'm not sure this is the life that I'm supposed to be living. And all of a sudden you have different inner promptings. Or somebody who might have been involved in sexual immorality as they enter into the sanctification process will start to become convicted of that. And what used to be no big deal and didn't think about it, and you know, all of a sudden becomes, I, I don't like how I feel in this. Like there's, it's conviction. Or somebody at one time, even as a Christian, might lie all the time. It's like second nature to you just, you know, oh, yeah, sure, I did that or I didn't do that, and you lied all the time. Well, what will happen is the Spirit of God will be at work in such your life where if you do that now, you keep telling those lies, the Spirit will, it'll, it, there'll be promptings that will go, I don't, I don't like this. This is what God has called me to. And over time, you'll find yourself convicted that getting drunk all the time isn't what you've been called to. It'll feel awkward and wrong. And that sexual morality that you didn't think twice about before, all of a sudden, you have this increased inner conflict. Or before, you might have teared that person a new one and cussed them out, and you might still do that, but because of the sanctification, you'll feel gross when you're done doing it. And that's the Spirit of God helping you in the sanctification process. It's the Spirit helping us with the reality, and here's the truth, that we still live in this flesh and in this body. And because of that, I will always struggle to do the things that I know I'm supposed to do and struggle with doing the things that I know I'm not supposed to do, as we talked about in Romans 7 last week. But the Spirit will lead us to walk by Him and not our flesh. And it takes time, and it's a process. And until we get our new, resurrected, immortal, imperishable bodies, it will be a whole lifetime process. But every morning, I would encourage you, wake up and just pray, God, I'm about to get out of bed, and I need your Holy Spirit to go with me. So I live in and out of him and not out of all the messed up, broken places within me, that dysfunctional operating system we talked about last week. Let me leave you with this, Romans chapter 8. Let me go back to Romans here. I want to read you chapter 8, a good section of it, so you can see life of the Spirit, what it does in terms of sanctification. It says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has finally set us free from the law of sin and death. Like That's where we used to be. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, meaning because I live in this body, God did himself by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. How? By us? No, by his Son who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now listen to verse 5. 
those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Now, don't you want at the end of 2014, how was your year? Full of life and peace. Don't you want to say that? How did 2014 go for you? Full of life and peace. How does that happen? Live life in the Spirit. Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of God living the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even the, then even though your body is still subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, I mean, if Jesus' dead, dead body was raised from the dead, that Spirit lives in you, will He also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you? Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. It's not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And because of that, we can now say and cry out, Dad, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. As you begin the sanctification process or continue your next step in it, let me just remind you, you have been washed and you've been justified. Not because of anything you've done, but because of Jesus. It's a position and identity in him. You belong to him, even if you're not very good at it yet. You'll need that security and that assurance in this process to know, even when you slip up, you belong to him. But in it, we voluntarily say to God, no, we're ready to enter into the sanctification process through the name of Jesus and the Spirit of our God. So at the end of this year, we'll be different than we were at the beginning of it. Now next week, as we wrap up this series, I want to talk to you about what do you do with that past story? Like, do we ever talk about it again? Or do we go, oh, yeah, I used to do this. I mean, how, what do we do with that past story? And how can we even use it to glorify Jesus? And how do you keep Satan or others from tripping up your future by mentally taking you back to the past that you knew that clear history from? So that's where we're going to go next week. But let me remember your position. You're a Christian. And the sanctification process is an act in the name of Jesus and the Spirit of God. And in that, we need grace. And we're about to take communion together. And for me, when I think about taking communion on a weekly basis, it is a means of God's grace. And there's a mystery to it in it that I, I can't explain. But when we take of the bread and we drink of the cup, there's somehow God's grace is flowing through to remind us of who we are and what he did for us. It centers us again to remind ourselves we've been justified we've been washed. So I want to encourage you this morning. You all are invited. You don't have to. If you don't feel comfortable, you don't have to come up. But I'm going to pray, and then you all are invited to come up to these three tables and take of the bread and take of the cup. And and it may it be for you a receiving of God's grace and a reminder of your position with Jesus, that it gives you strength in the week ahead. But I'd also say to you, it's also a communal thing. That's why we call it communion, not only with God, but with one another. And here at the Living Stones Church, 
it might not feel real somber and sacred. Like some of you might come from backgrounds where, you know, it's a very holy, head bowed. For us, we recognize, no, the metaphor that Jesus gives us is table. And when you gather around a table, you gather in community. It'd be kind of awkward to bow your head and put your hand over your face. And it doesn't mean you can't have introspection and reflection. It just means we do this together. And so as the aisles get a little congested, don't be worried about that. And I'd say at the same time, feel free to give a handshake, a high five, a hug, whatever you need to do to express, no, we're in this boat together of being justified and washed and sanctified. Let's pray together. Father, we come thank you for your grace and even that this moment of taking communion together would be for us a means of grace to receive life for this next week. We give you thanks for the body of your son and for the blood of your son and for what it represents in regards to our position with him. And so remind us of that and let us love one another well. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're invited as you're ready. Thank you.